I'm glad you guys are here tonight. For the last couple of weeks, we've been learning about anxiety and how it affects us both individually and also systemically. Systemically, I mean that anxiety spreads through all of our relationships. We bring it with us at to home, we bring it with us to work, we bring it with us to missional community, we bring it with us everywhere we go. We are relational in nature, being made in the image of the triune God, therefore we have relational souls. <clears throat> souls that can affect and be affected by those in our relational systems. Our families, our workplaces, our church, missional community, all of our, and even society at large, just by what we watch in the news can affect our souls. We've learned that one of our goals as a Christian is to become less reactive to our own anxiety and less reactive to the anxiety of others. To take responsibility for our own reactivity and our emotional maturity and to respond in a spirit-led, emotionally mature, and Christ-like way. This is a process of growth that's going to go on our entire life. So none of us have arrived. None of us are, are there yet. We all still consistently react in the flesh rather than respond in the spirit. So we need to remember that the goal of the Christian life and the goal of our church at large is to produce spiritually mature disciples of Christ. Now, unfortunately, many churches have abandoned this goal. They have settled for just attendance. As long as we get people to show up and sit in the seats and maybe give a little bit, that's all we're asking for. We're not aiming at spiritual maturity we just want to fill the seats. Many churches are no longer trying to make spiritually mature, responsible disciples of Christ. They simply hope to get people to attend a Sunday gathering. Now this is interesting. As you know that we're studying some of this stuff, Bowen Family System Theory, and it was written in, some of it's been written in a book later by Edwin Friedman. And he studied how anxiety affects systems, and he studied all kinds of different family groups and systems all across the world. And this is what he says. Listen to this. I'm going to quote it. Religious institutions are the worst offenders at encouraging immaturity and irresponsibility. Ouch. In church after church, some member is passively, aggressively holding the system hostage. And no one wants to fire him or force her to leave because it wouldn't, quote, be the Christian thing to do. It has nothing to do with Christianity. <clears throat> now, what Friedman is saying here is that many churches, the reactors are in emotional control. He characterizes the reactors as the least mature, least motivated, least self-regulating, and most stubborn people. 
But it's not just their fault, he says. Friedman says there is a second part to the equation. They have accomplices. And the accomplices are those people who permit and tolerate the least mature to take the church hostage most of the time in the name of love. Now, there's a lot, there's a lot of ways to name this. If you've ne never experienced it, if you've been in the church for a long time, you have. Um, it's seen some of the, some of the, the worst examples are in congreg congregational churches where the whole congregation gets a vote on basically everything the church does. And to change the carpet in the church can cause like fisticuffs in the parking lot, right? Like this is, it's not just a joke. I'm not being, I'm not exaggerating. Like this really happens. And, and most of the people sitting there are like, it's carpet. But there's a few who are like, but it should be red carpet. And the people who are that opinionated and that emotionally immature, usually everybody else is like, oh my God, fine, fine, let it be red. They kind of give in to the least emotionally mature. Now, this happens in, it happens at work. Whoever complains the loudest often, boss starts listening to their complaints. This happens to in missional community. The first person that says, I'm hurt, I'm offended. I don't like what you said. Many times the whole community kind of bends to their will and submits to their will. This happens in all different places. Now, the way I'm going to define this, you could call it many things. I've already named this in a podcast and I've mentioned it several times, so this talk is going to be talk called The Sin of Empathy. Okay, The Sin of of empathy. Now, it's been called many different things. You could also call it the tyranny of being nice. Listen what C.S. Lewis says. Now, well, first off, why do we do this? Why, why do we give in to the least mature, most reactive people? We do it because most of us want to avoid pain. Most of us are rather agreeable people. A lot of things were like, who cares, dude? Chill out. Like, I just want to, like, what's the point? Why get mad about this? Well, here's the problem. If all of us are agreeable and one tyrant stands up, that becomes a very bad situation, right? That becomes a very bad situation. We don't want to be agreeable with tyranny. We don't want to be agreeable to immaturity. Right? C.S. Lewis calls this the tyranny of being nice, and we do it because we want to avoid pain. Now, I'm gonna, I've got kind of an extensive quote here. He describes this in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says this, What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they're contented? So, who cares as long as you're happy? Like, we want a God to say, I don't really care what you're doing. All I care is that you enjoy it. Keep reading. We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. 
a senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see the young people enjoying themselves, and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Not many people, I admit, would formulate a theology in precisely those terms, but a conception not very different lurks at the back of many minds. I do not claim to be an exception. I should very much like to live in a universe which was governed on such lines. But since it is abundantly clear that I don't, and since I have reason to believe, nevertheless, that God is love, I conclude, here it is, that my conception of love needs correction. I might, indeed, have learned, even from the poets, that love is something more stern and splendid than mere kindness. Then even the love between the sexes is, as in Dante, a lord of terrible aspect, there is a kindness in love, but love and kindness are not coterminous. That means have the same meaning. And when kindness, in the sense given above, here it is, is separated from the other elements in love, it involves a certain fundamental indifference to its object, and even something like contempt of it. Kindness consents very readily to the removal of its object. We have all met people whose kindness to animals is constantly leading them to kill animals lest they should suffer. Kindness, merely as such, cares not whether its object becomes good or bad. This is the key. Kindness, merely as such, cares not whether its object becomes good or bad, provided only that it escapes suffering. As Scripture points out, it is bastards who are spoiled, the legitimate sons who are to carry on the family tradition are punished. Here's what Lewis is saying. He's saying when kindness gets, or, or niceness gets separated from the other elements of love, truth, holiness, responsibility, I could go on and on, it becomes something less than the love that, as God defined it. It's very interesting that he says, kindness, merely as such, doesn't care that a person is actually becoming more and more selfish. Doesn't care that a person is becoming more and more addicted. Doesn't care that a person is becoming more and more ungodly. Kindness only cares about keeping things peaceful or keeping things as painless as possible, as comfortable as possible right now. So you see here, Lewis is saying love, true love, is something more than kindness. Something more than niceness. So we're in a relationship with our spouse. We should be aiming at more than kindness, more than niceness. A relationship with our kids, more than kindness, more than niceness, right? If we're only aiming at kindness, we're probably not going to discipline them very often. Same thing goes with every relationship, especially our missional community relationship. Now, Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote of this reality in his novel, the brother Karamazov, he says this, quote, I am sorry, I can say nothing more to console you. For love in action 
is a harsh and dreadful thing compared with love and dreams. Love and dreams is greedy for immediate action, rapidly performed and in the sight of all. Men will even give their lives if only the ordeal does not last very long but soon over, with all looking on and applauding as though on a stage. But look at this. But active love is labor and fortitude, and for some people too, perhaps, a complete science. What does he mean that active love is harsh and dreadful? It is labor and fortitude. What he's saying is real love is painful. Painful. Full of pain. Real love is full of pain. Lewis goes on in other places to say, if you don't ever want to be hurt, if you don't want your heart ever broken, if you don't want your heart ever crushed, what do you do? Lock it away in a cage. And in a cage, you'll get your goal. It'll never be hurt. It will become unhurtable. It'll become rock solid, irredeemable. The father's love for his son makes him suffer pain of spanking him. No father, no good father, enjoys spanking his child, wants to spank his child, right? But what does real love do? Real love says, this immediate pain right now is going to be for your benefit. The rod of discipline drives foolishness far from the child, right? This immediate pain is more beneficial to you than prison or hell down the line. I'm, I'm, if you had a father, a godly father, who disciplined you like this, first off, you always thought they were liars as kids. My dad would sit me down, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I doubt it! That's my response always. All right, then let me spank you, because that'll hurt me somehow, right? But as a father, now I get it. It takes patience to do it. It takes time to do it. I got to get up from the dinner table and go take care of this, or I got to get up and go handle this thing. It takes gentleness, and it takes discipline to do it, to do it right, and to do it well. And it does cause you pain to inflict your son or daughter with that kind of discipline. We don't want to cause our son pain, but we do it to save them from greater pain later. We have to push through our current emotional pain and deal with our son's pain or daughter's in order to lead them into emotional and spiritual maturity, here's what, listen, which will result in your child being able to withstand more emotional pain. There's no getting away from pain. Disciplining your son or daughter rightly, doing the hard thing, enables them to be more spiritually and emotionally mature in the future. And what is spiritually and emotionally maturity? Being able to withstand your own emotional pain, greater emotional pain, and the pain of others. 
to be able to deal with that. Now, every one of us has a comfort zone with pain. How much pain we can bear. Now, what do I mean by pain? I mean anxiety. I mean stress. I mean shame, guilt, frustration, fear, whatever that is, it's causing emotional pain. We all, remember last week we talked about, we all have a cup. Our cup is a certain size. We have a certain amount of pain that we can handle within ourselves before we react emotionally. We have a certain amount of pain we can handle in others before we react emotionally. When we move beyond that comfort zone, that cup size, anxiety takes over. Draw a little, let's say, toleration of pain in others. I can't do it like this, so I'm just going to write it up here. Toleration of pain in self. Reactors have a low threshold for pain. Our children, great examples of it, very low threshold for pain, right? Stub their toe, lose their mind. She takes my doll, low threshold for pain. Rah, whatever, you know, either crying or fighting, typically, whatever type of child you got. Very low threshold for pain. When we are reactive and emotionally immature, listen, we are automatically geared and careless about boundaries. Reactors cannot maintain their own boundaries through self-definition. They're unable to respect the boundaries of others. Let me show you what's going on here. We've got four quadrants. We're going to have rescuers, quadrant A. We have responsibility. Quadrant B. Quadrant B. <clears throat> Can you guys see this, hopefully? Maybe. Helplessness. Quadrant C. And woe. Quadrant D. <clears throat> Here's where we're going to get to. I'm going to define it later, but let me just tell you right now. Empathy, I know we've been told a lot of things about it, and there's some confusion in our minds between empathy, sympathy, and compassion. We're going to get, I'm going to define that later, but empathy is actually indicative of a low threshold of pain in others. So let me go low here. 
high here, high, low. Quadrant A, rescuers. That indicates a toleration of pain, a high toleration of pain in self. So I'm pretty good managing my own anxiety. I'm pretty good managing my own feelings, my own emotions. But I have a very low toleration of pain in others. Okay? So I'm, I feel pretty good about myself. I feel pretty spiritually mature. I feel pretty good. But as soon as somebody shares something hurting with me, something difficult with me, I can't keep differentiated from them and I want to go in and rescue them. So I can't keep different. I always want to go and mesh with somebody else. I want to go be the hero. I want to go be the helper. I want to go fix it all the time. I, so this is interesting. I have a high toleration of pain in myself but a low toleration of pain in others. When I see somebody suffering, oh, I just got to go after it. I got to go help. I got to go fix. Rescuers are the most likely to get burned out. They're the most likely to suffer what's been called compassion fatigue. These are the folks... that create missional communities where everyone comes to them for everything. And if they were to be taken out, the whole MC would fall apart. In our language, these people have become, in one sense, Jesus to their missional community, and everyone else looks to them instead of looking to Jesus. Rescuers, quadrine. I'm not gonna. I'm trying not to look at anybody as I name these. Quadrant B, <clears throat> responsibility. That shows a high toler. This is where we want to be. Responsibility, high toleration of pain in myself, but also a high toleration of pain in others. This is taking responsibility for myself. And being able, here it is, to challenge others to take responsibility for yourself. Okay? A rescuer would say something like, do you read your Bible? No. Why not? It's so difficult in the morning to wake up. A rescuer would say, okay, I will set an alarm and I'll call you in the morning and I'll help you do this. That's what, I've heard it done in missional community. Maybe you've said it. Right? Rescuer, let me show you how to do it. Responsibility is, yeah, you need to do that. You should do that. I'm taking responsibility for myself, and I'm challenging others to take responsibility for themselves. This is, we've been talking about it, this is the well-differentiated Leader. Quadrant B. Quadrant C, 
helplessness displays a low toleration of pain in self and a low toleration of pain in others. By the name, it's where a person just feels helpless. They feel like they, they are a victim. And what do they want to do? They want to, they don't want to be, some of these people want to be around these people, but most of them, and they don't want to be around these people for sure, these people want to be together with other people that are kind of just as bad as they are. Misery loves company. Let's get together and talk about how bad our life is, how difficult our struggles are. <clears throat> Quadrant D, woe. Quadrant D, D depicts toleration of pain in others, but a low toleration of pain in the self. This person is so absorbed in their own pain in such a way that they cannot move beyond it to have compassion with others or care for others. It's literally the woe is me crowd. So this is the person who will never show up for mission because they have a difficult life. This is the person who always wants to be asked, how was your day, but will never ask another person, how was your day? This is the person that always wants to be checked in on, but never checks in on anybody else. Okay? So what does it mean to have a high toleration of pain in others? Sociopaths do too. They just don't really care that anybody else in the room is hurting. This group, all they care, they care about their pain, but not the pain of others. <clears throat> Friedman said that the church was more emotionally immature because they often allowed emotionally immature people to take the church hostage all in the name of love. Now listen to the deal. Here's the deal. If you are group A or group B and you have been saved by Christ, you've been given a new heart by Christ, you have been redeemed, you, he says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, so what does that mean? You probably have a heart for group C and D. You probably care about them. You probably want to see them grow and you want to see them mature, right? You want to see God do something in their life, and rightly so. Well, what's the problem here? Well, he went on to name the problem, and then he named this problem as a secular guy in the 90s. And I believe he hits the nail right on the head but it probably is going to come as quite a shock to many of us. It's for sure going to shock those who are, who are not immersed in a Christian worldview or a biblical worldview. Friedman said, the problem is empathy. These groups, who I'm just going to say, for the most part, lead the church, they're the healthiest people in the church. If this is an organism. These are the white blood cells of the church. What they tend to do is feel empathy for C and D, and they move towards them, and they allow C and D, and even sometimes A can get in this bad thing too, but they allow C and D to control the emotional atmosphere of the whole church, of the whole organism. He called the problem 
empathy. Now, I want you to hear this. I believe Friedman is on to something here, and I think it's really important. And we know that Satan has been around for a lot longer than any of us. His theology is better than us. His intellect is better than us. He's smarter than us, okay? He's been tempting and lying and deceiving from the very beginning. And I think this is one of his most tricksy attacks. I think this is one of the most alluring temptations that Satan is using against us currently and, listen parents, especially against our children. It's called the sin of empathy. There are some uh, schools in our area that no longer teach history in grade school and they no longer teach these different things. And what are, one of the things, one of their main core values is to teach empathy. They're teaching the value of empathy. That's not an accident. Here's a long quote from Friedman in A Failure of Nerve. The word, and this, is, this blew my mind, guys, when I first read it. Let's, long quote. The word empathy is used so often today by teachers, parents, healers, and managers that few realize it only entered the English language in the 20th century. Compared to sympathy, which is 450 years old, and compassion, which goes back to 1340. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word empathy was first employed in 1922 when a need arose to translate a German word in the field of aesthetics. Einverlang, to feel in. The original intent of the word empathy was to convey how projecting oneself into a work of art, painting, sculpting, theater, would enable a viewer to appreciate better the creation being observed. In fact, the word empathy does not appear in the original edition of the Oxford English Dictionary published in 1931 after 50 years of painstaking research into the breadth and particular particulars of the tongue without the aid of word processors. Now listen to this. Here's the idea. If you're familiar with critical theory, critical theory began back in Germany. Well, we have critical race theory. All of that came out of critical theory. Eventually, it was art. Or early, it was art theory. And this, it's a postmodern conception for artists who believed they could put themselves into a painting, put themselves into a work of art. And therefore, if you're into art, you could look and you could see something about that person. There, something about their self was in the art. Okay? That's where this word came up from. A full, think about it. A full immersion into some medium. Now let's keep going. Friedman continues. It wasn't until after World War II that the word empathy became a part of common parlance as it jumped from art appreciation to that of human relationships. So sociologists heard it in the art department and they started employing it. Now listen. It promised that projecting one's own person into the skin of another would enable one to understand the person fully. 
to be more sensitive to his or her condition and to a better appreciate his or her dilemma. Empathy, to feel in, therefore was intended to be an advance over old-fashioned concepts such as sympathy or compassion, which mean only to feel or suffer with. So empathy, to feel in, Compassion, sympathy to suffer with. As lofty and noble as the concept of empathy may sound, and as well-intentioned as those may be who make it the linchpin idea of their theories, Brene Brown, of healing, education, management, societal regression has too often perverted the use of empathy into a disguise for anxiety. A rationalization for the failure to define a position and a power tool in the hands of the sensitive. So, there's a difference between compassion, putting your arm around someone and suffering with them, and empathy, trying to feel what they feel, trying to be so invested and so in this relationship that as they feel, I feel. As they get out of control, I get out of control. Now, why is this important? Christians today use the word empathy, sympathy, and compassion as if they're interchangeable. We need to see that the word empathy is not found anywhere in our scriptures. Never once is empathy used in our scriptures. It is not a biblical or a Christian concept, even though we can use it sometimes in a thoughtless way because it seems like it's a synonym. The scriptures use words like compassion, sympathy, and even pity, though we all hate the word pity. Here's what the scriptures say in Psalm 103.13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Now think about, here we go, compassion, I feel for my child, I'm suffering with my child, even in his disobedience, yet I'm differentiated in such a way that I can still discipline my child. That's compassion. As the the compassionate father disciplines us, right? The the, The child he loves, he disciplines. Empathy would get so lost in the feelings of my child, I refuse to discipline. Can't you tell? She's just really, she hasn't had her nap today. Oh, I know. They, it's been a really hard day for her. It's really difficult. She's got this teacher. It's just, oh, it's so hard. Empathy gets lost in the feelings of another and is unable to keep the well-differentiated space to be real love and not just kindness. Psalm 72, 13. God has pity on the weak and needy. He saves the lives of the needy. So I want us to see pity, compassion, sympathy isn't me standing over here going, sucks to be you. Hope you can get through it, dude. I'm not talking 
about a carelessness, a careless attitude of those who are suffering or those who are going through difficult times. Not what I'm, we're talking about at all. So what is the difference? To have compassion, sympathy, or pity is to suffer with someone but not allow myself, and this is going to be controversial maybe, not allow myself to be compromised by their pain. That I keep my integrity intact while being present with them in their pain. I do not lose myself in their pain or anxiety. Now, it's interesting in our society, if something goes, something goes poorly, our news reacts in such a way that they want us to immediately react. There's even people that believe uh, silence is violence. That they want emotional reactivity out of you, and empathy demands it. Empathy demands you reach out. You post something on your, on your Facebook. You do something like this. It is a call for you to lose your integrity because you feel like, I have to do this thing. If I'm going to be an empathetic person, I have to post this on my wall. I have to respond this certain way. I think this is why it's such a dangerous, con- many of reasons it's why it's a dangerous concept. One, it so subtly plays off of a Christian's n- desire for compassion. But here's how it's working in the public school system. Public school system, number one v- virtue that they're pumping through is empathy. And then all of a sudden you get up to this person, d- this four-year-old, this six-year-old, this eight-year-old, doesn't believe she is a female. You should feel empathetic to her. All the halls of Bettendorf and all these different people, all these different schools, love is love on the wall. All of this is empathy weaponized. So your child who has a soft heart towards Jesus, your, heart, your child who is compassionate, They use that compassion against them to now say the most compassionate thing to do, the most empathetic thing to do is just to give them what they want. And schools, even in Wisconsin, still just this last week voting that it's okay for teachers to allow, to to know about these students transitioning and not tell the parents about it because it needs to be a safe, empathetic place for these children who are experiencing gender confusion. It's weaponized empathy. It's weaponized compassion. And I think Christian kids might be the most vulnerable because we raise our kids to care for the least of these, to care for the poor, to care for the outsider, to care for the sufferers. But do you see how subtle the difference that love and kindness, you see how subtle the difference is that it would be somehow harmful to them to tell them the truth about their identity, that their body actually says something about their personhood, about how they've been made in the image of God. So, the analogy that I've used before is, think of quicksand. 
The quicksand analogy is, you come across a pit, there's someone drowning in the quicksand, you're a Christian, you feel bad for this person. I don't care if you made a foolish decision, I don't care how you got here, I feel bad for, the, for you, I care for you. Empathy says, I feel so bad for you, and psh, jumps in there with them. They just hug all the way down. Do you feel loved? Do you feel loved? I want you to feel affirmed. I want you to feel affirmed. That's empathy. Sympathy stands on the edge, maybe puts one foot in there, maybe holds on to something, reaches a hand out and says, grab my hand. We stay connected to truth. We can stay connected to reality. Reality. We stay connected to solid ground while offering a help for somebody who's suffering, somebody who's in the pit. And guess what? They might go, who do you think you are to help me? I don't need help. You have the problem. People do that. People will do that. They will reject that. They feel completely fine with their reality. An example from history, oh my goodness, how much time do I have? Okay, an example from history, if you know anything about history, World War II history, Neville Chamberlain, he was the super nice, empathetic politician in World War II who believed he could appeal to Hitler's better nation, or better nature, and work out a peace treaty. And so he did, he flew over there, he met Hitler, and he came back and he told everybody the great news, he's not going to invade Talked him out of it. Total sensible guy. And we know what happened. He invaded Poland. And then what did they have to do? They had to get rid of Chamberlain. And Winston Churchill took his place. Winston Churchill was the guy that almost no one liked. He had been put out to pasture. He had been like, he was bombastic, he was loud, he was bold, he was daring, he was uncompromising, and he made people uncomfortable. And he drank and smoked a lot of cigars. He drank a lot. He was not polite or nice. But it was Churchill and not Chamberlain that led the Allies to victory. It was Churchill who stood up and did those amazing speeches, speeches and rallied the troops and said, by land, by air, by sea, by, we're going to fight till we die. Right? That's the difference between a responsible leader and a, and a Chamberlain who was empathetic, probably, probably a rescuer. I'm going to go in there and I can, I can fix Hitler. I can, I can fix this deal. Now, I don't want to... We, we also see it in the life of Jesus. So I, I want to get there. I don't want... This isn't just a, kind of a secular concept. Listen to John chapter 2, verses 23. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people, and he did no one to bear witness about man, for he knew 
what was in man. What does this mean? Jesus is there, present with them. Jesus is healing people. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them. What does that mean? He remained responsible and differentiated. I'm going to do what I'm doing no matter what you do. I'm not going to get lost by overly connecting myself with you. We see this in the life of Jesus. At one point, they want to crown him king. What does Jesus do? Nope. Another point, they want to throw him off the cliff. What does Jesus do? Nope. He keeps a responsible distance. He keeps a well-differentiated self. Doesn't lose himself in the desires of people. Another reason why we, gotta, we need to clarify the difference between empathy, compassion, sympathy is found in Hebrews chapter 4, chapters 14 to 16. It says this about Jesus. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is able, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Okay, so pause. Doesn't empathize, he sympathizes with us. That means he suffers with us. He knows what it feels like to be a human being. He took the weaknesses of human flesh upon himself. Right? He set aside some of his divine attributes as he added humanity to his divinity. But what did he not do? Look, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay, do you see the key difference there? Sympathy suffers with someone without sinning. So I can't, I can't jump into the quicksand with you and affirm something that's not real, that's not true. I can't lose truth. We also see this in the ministry of Jesus. His goal was to teach. Teaching requires differentiation, right? Like right now, you guys are listening, you guys are learning, I'm teaching. Teaching is the art of helping other people take more responsibility for their life. In other words, Jesus did not overfunction. He did not rescue everyone from their anxieties. He tried to raise their thinking capacities. He raised their understanding of God and the world so that they could this is so fascinating to me. He raised their threshold for pain so that they could deal with more pain in the future. How many times did Jesus say, I suffered, you're going to suffer. 
You're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. They called me a demon, they're going to call you a demon. They threw me out of the temple, they're going to throw you out of the temple. Demons oppressed me, demons attacked me, demons are going to attack you. People are going to, they lied about me, people are going to lie about you. Jesus, spiritual maturity, trying to prepare his disciples, he taught them that you're going to have to deal with pain and you're going to have to raise your toleration of pain, if you want to help others, you've got to be able to tolerate more pain than the average person. He stayed connected them to them, but refused to do everything for them. Listen to this in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. <clears throat> and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. See that? Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Pause. There's this growing thing in our culture right now. If you see people harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, you run out and join them. You light, they're lighting their hair on fire, you light your hair on fire. They lose their mind, you lose your mind. That's not what Jesus does. Look, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers out into his harvest. Do you see what Jesus does right here? This is right here. Now, we know Jesus is our ultimate rescuer and our ultimate redeemer in the work he did on the cross. But in his life and ministry, he goes, whoa, do you see how bad that is out there? They are helpless. They are sheep without a shepherd. I have compassion on them. Let's pray that God would send somebody to help them. Jesus, you're not very empathetic. You should get out there with them. You have the power to go heal them right now if you wanted to heal them. You are the great shepherd. Go shepherd them. Jesus says, no, I'm doing something bigger than that. I need to pray to God. And you need to pray to God. You need to take responsibility for this. You need to pray. And you need to ask God to send more laborers out into the harvest. Do you see this differentiated self where he's not rescuing everybody? He's asking them to take responsibility, to ask God to meet this person's need instead of being the one that steps in it to meet the need for them. Jesus did not take all of the responsibility onto himself He's saying, I'm not going to do it all, and that's how God wants it. God wants you guys to take responsibilities and ask him for it. Jesus here had a high capacity for pain in himself and others. Now, we also see this in his personal encounters with the lost. With the lost. Jesus seems okay with uncomfortable truth and awkward painful conversations. 
he seems to be okay with that. I only have two minutes. So let me just brief. I have three texts that I was going to go to. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, the rich young ruler. We know this. Most of us probably, if we're trying to lead somebody to Christ, this isn't the passage we take them to. Jesus, what must I do to be saved? What do you think? Keep the law and the prophets. Keep the law. Okay, which ones? Names off a few? I've done those. Oh, great. Congratulations. Do this and you'll be saved. Sell everything you own and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And the rich young ruler walks away sad. Does Jesus not understand the gospel? I thought the gospel didn't cost us anything. I think, shouldn't he just said, you just need to believe and that's all you need to do in this moment? See, Jesus wasn't empathetic. He wasn't looking, oh, this is just a poor, lost, rich boy. Oh. No. He said, this guy is an idol worshiper. He's going to have to give up his idol if he wants to come and follow me. So let me just say it right away. You are an idol worshiper. Give up your money. Sell it. That's your idol. That's your comfort. That's what you're looking to. That's your real God. If you want to come and find eternal life, you have to give up your real God. That's what compassion does. That's what sympathy does. That's what pity does. That's not what empathy will ever do. Empathy will just go, oh, so hard being rich. feel you. John 4, the woman at the well. Seriously, one of the most awkward conversations Jesus ever had. Woman, I'm thirsty. <laughs> Give me something to drink. You got no, you know, it's a funny conversation. And, he's, and then she's like, well, she's in the middle of the day. She's hiding. She's hiding from people. She's got a disreputable reputation. He says, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for something to drink. She's like, How am I, you ain't got a bucket. I'm not going to ask you for something to drink. You don't have a bucket. What are you talking about? He says, I have eternal water, basically. Water that if you drink once, you'll never, drink, you'll never thirst again. Where do you have this water? Where do you get this water? And then he goes, go get your husband. That's an awkward turn in the conversation. I have no husband. You're right. You don't have your husband. You've had five. How dare he bring up my past? How dare he shame me about my, uh, my five husbands? Well, And the man you're with now isn't even your husband. Who do you think you are? Well, he's the son of God. If you, know who, if you knew who he was, you'd be asking him for that eternal water that once you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again. Do you see the difference? There's, and I don't know how to describe it. I don't know if you, but I think the church, I think Friedman was right. I think most of the church is infected with this tyranny of niceness or the sin of empathy that if this person, this woman shows up in our life or shows up in our missional community, we would never actually say what Jesus just said there. You've been thirsty your whole life and you've been looking for men 
to quench that thirst. And obviously, you're just as thirsty as you've always been because you're still not married. And I have the eternal water that will satisfy your soul. But you're going to have to give up your man. Do you see the difference here? Now, Paul does this in Corinthians as well. He writes them a scathing letter. And then in 2 Corinthians, he tells them specifically, listen, I know that letter grieved you. I know it hurt you. It wasn't pleasurable for me to send it to you, but I'm thankful that I did because you were grieved into repenting. It, was a, it produced a godly grief that led to repentance. A worldly grief leads to shame, but a godly, godly grief leads to repentance. Now, I don't want to become too anal about the word empathy. Most people use them interchangeably. It might be helpful for us to just not use the word empathy, but if somebody says it, you don't go, well, that's a sin. You know, like, that's not what I'm trying to do. But I want to frame out this concept that your missional community has to be more than nice, has to be more than empathetic. Your family has to be. Your relationship with your wife has to be. It's, there's got to be something more than empathy. And we've got to be aware that this is going on. And we've got to be aware that of the temptation, and I think how Satan is using it as a counterfeit virtue to kind of capture our minds. And, and listen, if you lean more towards, or I'll just say the left politically, you're more inclined towards this sin. This goes for, this goes for societies at large. This is who, we want this, these people to make up most of our society. If you're going to have a successful, healthy society, you need responsible people. Okay? You can't get so concerned about the helpless that you actually make them more responsible or irresponsible by trying to rescue them. That's, if you're leaning towards the left, that's a major problem. And it's the sin of empathy, where you're probably pretty okay with taking the money of these people and giving it to these people. Right? It's not, it's not biblical. All right? So, all right, I got to stop. 7.35, maybe time for questions. Plenty of time for questions, hopefully. Uh, thoughts, questions, concerns, engage so we can talk. Joel? How do I not come off as aloof when I'm trying to be well differentiated? Great question. Who cares? 
your wife. <laughs> yes, great response. My wife cares, okay? All right. So, listen, this is why I said who cares. And it is kind of facetious because I know we all care. We don't want to be perceived that way. But when you are well differentiated, you will be perceived that way. You will be perceived as uncaring. You will be perceived as egotistical. You will be perceived as this guy thinks he knows, what he, he knows better than everybody else. You will be perceived that way. And specifically by these people, they will. Now listen, when, it's, when you're dealing with your spouse, you have to say, Honey, I care very deeply about you, and I think you need to deal with this situation. I think this is something that is in your wheelhouse, is in your realm. This isn't on me right, right now. This is what you need to deal with. Yes, it's hard. You can do it. You've been given everything you need for life and godliness, right? You can do it. You gospel your wife in a sense, and you don't take it on yourself. Keep it right where it needs to be. You just affirm, yes, it's hard. Yes, you can do it. Yes, Christ has given you the power. Buck up, buttercup. That's it. Don't say that. <laughs> just came to me. Don't say that. <clears throat> yeah. Adam. Uh, Adam is referencing a, a talk that I did sometime pa in the past about kindness and niceness. And if you know anything about me, you know I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, I don't remember teaching on that, and so I have no idea. I can't reconcile that with this. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why, but I don't remember such things. Similar concept. Okay. Yeah. So there's a, like, like I said, th so there's a lot of ways to describe this. Lewis used the term kindness versus love, right? Kindness was separated from the other attributes of love, truth, righteousness, holiness, goodness, all these different things. That's how way he described it. Friedman uses the word empathy. I find empathy uh, more compelling because of the, its recent invention in the human language and the fact that it's not in the Bible at all. So I find that an easier contrast. Yes, sir. Hey, if you, now listen, I'm sorry. Like if you find yourself down here or you're down here and you're feeling defeated, I'm really sorry. The, the, I know, I know. Of course, no, no, uh-uh, I know. Not, there's only one person down here. Everybody else is right here tonight, Okay. That's why you're here, okay? That's why you're here. So, this is, down here, you see yourself as a victim. Now, I want you to think about this. Hebrew slaves came out of slavery from Egypt. They'd been slaves for 430 years. There's two ways you can think of that. 
all I've known is slavery. I've been a slave all my life. My dad was a slave. My grandpa was a slave. Everybody's taken everything from me. I've never had anything. This world is broken. This world is set against me. That's a slave mentality. Or you can come out of the same, slave, same slavery and said, my people have been enslaved for 430 years and they still couldn't stop me. They still couldn't stop us. Look what God has done. God has delivered us. Look at all the pain I've been through. God must be using my life to tell a story. God must be doing something significant with my life. Those are two different ways to interpret the same event. The people down here have the slave mentality, have the victim mentality. They don't see responsibility. They don't see their own. They have a responsibility to respond to their circumstances in a certain way, and they are in control of it. So the way to move up is through responsibility, taking responsibility, and what does that mean? By the way, so many of our, this is, our kids are growing up in this kind of weak environment, and this is why men like Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson are capturing the minds and hearts of so many men with simple things like make your bed, go to work, work out, life's hard, yeah, suck it up, dress nice, hold your shoulders back. Stuff that many of us may be old enough, the older folks in here at least, you probably were told by somebody growing up, and this younger generation is not being told. The only way to go from here to here is to be able to endure more pain. And that's by taking responsibility for your own pain, your own anxiety, and be able to endure the pain of others. Like to be able to be present in it without even over-functioning, taking it on yourself, running away from it, lashing out at it, whatever. So it's through taking responsibility and enduring pain. And we could go back to last week, as to, same thing, growing in spiritual maturity. That's, that's how we move up. And I could also add, through faith and repentance. Rescuers, be rescuing. When you rescue and you realize it, you repent, Confess it, turn from it, you grow. Yes. Yeah, it's good. So the C.S. Lewis quote, if God treats you like sons, there's going to be pain involved. You're going to be being disciplined. The bastard doesn't get the discipline. And we can easily interpret, if we've been through a lot of pain, oh, that's because God doesn't love us. If God loved me, I'd be sitting on the beach every day with my ties and just no pain. No. You, um, did God love Jesus? Has anyone ever endured as much pain as Jesus? 
The answer is no, because he had, he had the sonship of God. He had a relationship with God, and it was torn from him. And he took the sin of the world as a sinless victim, took the sin of the world on him, felt separation from God for the first time, sweat drops of blood. Literally, no one has ever suffered like Jesus. And do, did God love Jesus? Yes. And that costed Jesus a whole lot of pain, a whole lot of relational pain. And I, he learned obedience to the things that he suffered. So there's, there's no other way around it. There's no other way to spiritual maturity. This is a, this is, guys, this is for everything in life. You've got it. We've got to be able to handle high, we have to have a high toleration of pain in self and a high toleration of pain in others if we're going to create disciples who take responsibility for themselves and not attenders who just kind of freeload. Cliff. I, I, Cliff, and you're better dressed, so you got, the, you got it. That's good. Mm. Yeah, that's good. So that statement, I, I don't have enough arrogance to be empathetic. Like, I can't even imagine what you're going through. I can't even, I, it's kind of, it is, that's a great statement because if someone lost a brother, if I haven't lost a brother, how can I really empathize with that person anyways? What do you want me to do? Just fake cry? I can't. I know you're hurting, but I don't know what that feels like because I haven't felt it. And so, yeah, it, it is, it could be. It could be arrogance to try to act, act like it. Yeah. Yes, and again, we are to weep with those who weep. We are to com comfort those who are mourning. 
We are meant to respond that way in some times. But think of, R.C. Sproul preached a sermon called the tyranny, of the, the, the tyranny of the Weaker Brother. You know the Weaker Brother principle? If something causes a brother to stumble, stop doing it. If you take that to its extreme, the Weaker Brother controls the whole church. Because I have a problem with the way you do this. I have a problem with the way you do that. Right? That can be taken to that logical stream. And weep with those who weep. Lots of people weep. Am I supposed to cry all day long? There's lots of people crying right now. What do you mean by that? Like, if we took that to its lot, literally, then we'd just be weeping all, all day long. Right? So we, we have to be able to be able to weep with those who weep, but then also to go, actually, now it's time to stop weeping. Now it's time to take responsibility. Now we have to do something. Now we have to go to work. Now we have to go on with life. Yeah. So I don't understand quite what you're trying to say. And I just have to be honest. I'm not that smart, so sometimes I have to just say, I don't, I don't know what I mean. A, B, and then I'll come back, Jay. Yeah, what is discernment? Okay, so let me just make it really practical. What does discernment look like? Let's just say I am functioning right now in quadrant B, and I've got somebody in quadrant C that just joined my missional community, and they tell their story, right? Well, if they're brand new, and they're new to Christianity, I'm going to engage them in their helplessness, and I'm going to meet them there, and I'm going to share the gospel in a way that Jesus is the one that brings healing to them. And I'm going to say you seem really helpless, and I'm going to be there in it, and I'm going to let Jesus be that rescuer, okay? Because the first thing they need is to realize, I mean, here's the problem. The first thing we need for the gospel is to feel helpless. We need to be aware of our helplessness. So if they're down here, okay, cool. I'm going to share the gospel with them in such a way that Jesus heals them from that. But now, months down the road, as we're walking with Jesus, I'm not going to be, my discernment is not, the next time they tell their story, they, they better not be here. Maybe they're, maybe they're here. <laughs> maybe they're, you know what I mean? They're, they're working. They should, be, they should be growing. So this is what it usually looks like. The next time they tell their story, I'm not 
addressing the ways they've been sinned against. I'm now going to address the way they have sinned. The way they have reacted to being sinned against. That's what I'm going to do. To help them take some responsibility. Okay, I realize you had a difficult upbringing. I realize you grew up like this. I realize it. But do you realize that you are now choosing this? You chose to go back to the strip club. Do you realize that you chose to get drunk this time? You have the new heart of Christ. You're a Christian. Do you realize you chose that? If I can get the person to admit that, they've taken one step up the ladder of responsibility. Right? That's what I want. Not that they're a helpless victim and, this, and everything's against them. So using discernment in the moment to see where people are at. And obviously in this quadrant, we're, we're all over, right? In whatever quadrant we are. Yeah, they could. I mean, it depends. They could be, or they could just be really responsible, great people. Humility, kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Jesus is like way up here, bro. So we wouldn't say he's self-righteous, right? So just because somebody's up here, they, they could tend towards that responsible people. And what are you trying to do with, so if a person is very responsible, very wealthy, have done really, taken responsibility, done a great job, and they look down on these people, your, your discernment when you're addressing the gospel with them is to show them how they are actually helpless to save themselves. So my first, a helpless person, right, I'm wanting them to, to see how Jesus saves them, and Jesus is going to bring them up. A really responsible, self-righteous person, the first thing I want them to see is how actually helpless they are to save themselves. Way back in the back. They could. They could. That's, that's a good point. Yeah, that could be. It could be, they, they could fall in that position. So if they, are, if they are high toleration of pain and self, but a low, they would be probably, how would that be? High toleration of pain of self, because they, they're, they're doing really good, I don't know. But yeah, it could be, it could be over there. I can't figure it out. So. But that, that makes a, that, that's a good point. They have low toleration of pain in others. Uh, no, no. That would be up here. That would be up here. But it would be unhealthy. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have no test for this, okay? That's, that's true. Sure, 100%. Yeah, too much. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Again, yes, I would. I would agree with that. And I think, like, what day of the week is it? How much sleep did you have? How caffeinated are you? How how much time with Jesus have you been? Because we, I mean, like, I wake up feeling like this sometimes, for sure. I wake up down here. You know, I wake up feeling woe is me, and I don't care about anybody else. You know, and and. Sometimes I'm like, I just need to go hang out with some sinners, feel better about myself. <laughs> Going to cigar bar today, right? So, right? So, so yes, we're ne- nobody nails it. Nobody's living in category B. The goal, though, this is, I think this is the big thing. The, to- the, the ability to handle pain, that's spiritual maturity. Because that would be like the, the sinners up in B would be like the Pharisees. Perfect example of the Pharisees, you know. But don't really care about anybody else. Pour, putting burdens on everybody else. That's the sinful response for that. Mm-hmm. Carly? Carly in the hat. Add Hebrews 12. Take a look at Hebrews 12. The rest of Hebrews 12. Yeah. <clears throat> I saw one other hand, I thought. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's a great point. That's a great point. And a great question. How, how do you deal with someone who interprets it wrong? Um. And you meet up with the person, and, and they want you to affirm them in their sin, or they want you to get in it with them. They don't want to hear what they should do. They don't want to hear how they should respond. They don't want to have any responsibility on themselves. All they want you to do is say, it's really hard to be you. And if you say something to them, like you need to believe the gospel or give them something to do, they get hurt by it, and then they can, that can compile to what they call now church hurt, and you're hurt by churches, that is a reality. That is what we have to, I think that is a reality we have to walk. That's why we need discernment. That's why we need to be gentle. That's why we need to follow the Holy Spirit. But, I mean, I think, I think it's, if you read the, the New Testament, you see that happen over and over and over and over. Um, and so, Jesus told us that some of the world is going to hate us. Jesus told us even wolves were going to come into the flock and deceive, and deceive the flock, come from among us. So it's, we have to just, we have to deal with it. And again, I think that's toleration of pain in other people. Like, 
man, this person hurt me. Do I really want to say the hard thing again? Because you get tired of saying the hard thing. You get tired of saying the thing that you know they're going to smack you in the face over. You know they're going to write something about you on, on Facebook. You know, it, you get, it, gets, uh, it gets hard. So I, I think, hopefully I answer that. I just think it's, it's perseverance. It's perseverance. Tony. Sure. So, yes. So there's two main categories of sin. Sins of commission, sins of omission. Commission, the things that you do wrong that you should not do. Sins of omission, the things that you, the good things that you're commanded to do that you fail to do. So the sin of empathy could be, under the category, a sin of omission. You're meant to share the truth with them, and instead, you just affirm them. You just hug, you just whatever. You didn't actually share the truth with them. So yeah, that could be, it could also be characterized as a sin of omission, which is a failure of love. Yeah. 801. Anybody else? Last, last hurrah. <clears throat> okay. Father God, we thank you for your grace. Jesus, we thank you saving us from our sins, that none of us are righteous, none of us deserve it. We are, we are all sinners. We all need your grace. Jesus, we thank you for coming and living the perfect life in our place, that you were our sympathetic high priest. You walked this line perfectly. You knew exactly when to hug and to hold and to give the affirming word, and you knew exactly when to flip tables and to say the hard thing and do the hard thing. And so we thank you for living the life that we couldn't live, and then we thank you for dying on the cross to pay our penalty, and we thank you for giving us your righteousness. So now um, we have freedom. We're not trying to obey you in order to please you, that the Father is already pleased with us because of Jesus, but now we can obey Jesus. We can follow Jesus. And so we ask for the Holy Spirit to help us um, increase our ability to tolerate pain and anxiety in ourself. And we ask that you would help us, um, you would increase our toleration for pain in others and that we would walk in compassion, in sympathy, and in pity, and we would reject the sin of empathy. I pray that you would help us towards this until we meet again. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.